Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Columbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, it's Thursday on the Three Martini Lunch, and we are really glad that you have joined us for another day of all crazy martinis, actually, today. But three more martinis. Uh, there's good elements, bad elements, and crazy elements to all of them, but all of them have enough crazy that we're going crazy across the board. And, hey, why not? So let's start with the uh, Democratic presidential primary. Of course, Saturday is the South Carolina primary, and then Tuesday is Super Tuesday, 14 Different states will be voting, lots of delegates being uh, awarded, uh, particularly California and Texas being the biggest prizes. But uh, even before the votes are held in South Carolina and on Super Tuesday, Jim, it's always fun to watch campaigns give you the rationale for why no matter what happens, they're going on. And uh, with some of them, it makes sense. Obviously, Bernie's, no matter what happens, going to go on. Uh, but uh, the others are also saying that this is going to happen. Now, Joe Biden, according to the latest couple of polls in South Carolina, has opened up a pretty sizable lead, uh, if that's the case. Uh, even though that's where he was a month ago, it's going to be seen as a massive resurgence, and he's going to have super momentum going into Super Tuesday. And any uh, delegate pickups there is going to be more than enough reason to keep going. Uh, then you got Mike Bloomberg. Uh, he's, of course, uh, thrown about half a billion dollars into this already. His campaign is saying a lot of things are going to be decided by Super Tuesday. But you have to think that uh, unless they get completely obliterated, uh, that they are having every intention of continuing on to all the other states. They are the ones making the argument the hardest that just because Joe Biden wins by a lot in South Carolina is not a big deal because it was always expected. It was only recently due to Biden's own poor showing in earlier states that the question even arose as to whether he could still win in South Carolina. Then you've got the more complicated approach. That's Pete Buttigieg whose campaign says in a memo that its objective on Super Tuesday is to minimize the margins of victory by Bernie Sanders and maximize delegate accumulation by congressional district, not states, uh, because that's uh, how a lot of them are allocated. So if they can get to certain thresholds in different counties and different jurisdictions in different states, they can still pile up a few delegates here and there and give them a rationale to continue. That's not to say that Warren and Klobuchar and Steyer won't come up with a rationale either. I just haven't seen their campaigns come up with them so far, Jim. So uh, it's always fun for candidates to say the voters are going to decide this and they just don't listen to them anyway. You know, Greg, I was thinking about this and discussing this with somebody last night. And we had this observation that you maybe in politics, we don't have any elder statesmen at all. But the people who traditionally would play that role in the Democratic Party right now aren't interested in playing that role. You could say you could point to President Obama and maybe Michelle Obama. You could point to the Clintons. You could point to you know, Nancy Pelosi is clearly in a position of leadership of the party. You can even go back to the, the you know somebody like Al Gore, right, or just somebody who is respected by everybody who's been around a long time, who's been playing the political ga- political game for a long time. And if there was people who were in this role, you know, first of all, much earlier in this process, they would have gone to someone like Michael Bennett, Deval Patrick, people who were in that 1% range and saying, look, it's not happening for you. Um, you. You're still a relatively young man. You still have a future. If we win this cycle, there are cabinet positions that will be up for grabs. There will be other roles in future administrations or other roles in politics. Maybe you want to run for governor someday. The decisions you make right now will have consequences for that. You're not doing anything in this race. Please get out. And they could have done that then. 
and, you know, narrowed the field before, you know, you had these silly folks staying in long past their prime. And you could still say people making this sort of a message to an Amy Klobuchar right now, or maybe even a Pete Buttigieg right now, and or some sort of message, maybe even to Joe Biden to say, Joe, we love you. It's clearly not happening for you this cycle. Uh, at this point, you're just dividing the folks who need to be you know, united behind a centrist option or a non-openly socialist option. It's time for, you know, they, there are people who could traditionally would play this kind of role and they've chosen not to. And so as a result, there is no force coming in and saying, you know, look, you really got to get out. In light of that, they then they're like, well, OK, how can we imagine a scenario in which it makes sense to stay in? Now, Biden is probably going to win South Carolina. There's some polling that indicates he's going to have uh, a good one. And, you know, hey, good for you, Mr. Vice President. The next question is, what are you doing on Super Tuesday? And then lucky for him, there's a bunch of southern states. And if you think that, you know, African-Americans and older voters and slightly more conservative Democrats are the base for a Joe Biden campaign, maybe he can have a good day on Super Tuesday, win a couple of states and get back in this. If he doesn't, it's kind of fair to ask, okay, you know, Joe, this is not happening for you. You were fifth in, in New Hampshire, right? This is, you know, it's time to recognize reality and get, you know, help us unite behind somebody else. For Bloomberg, you see, you know, if you can't get there after spending $400 million, it's not going to happen for you, right? You, I'm sure Bloomberg could always say, oh, yeah, wait till I spend $800 million, you know. Uh, but, but really, at some point, if, if, you, if you can't gain traction after dominating the airwaves for weeks and weeks, and as we've discussed on previous podcasts, like place, in states like Virginia, having the airwaves to yourself – if you're not winning states in that scenario, if you're not close to second place in that scenario, it's just not going to happen for you. Uh, Pete Buttigieg, another situation where like, you know, Pete, you ran a great campaign in Iowa and a pretty darn good campaign in New Hampshire. The problem is you can't replicate that everywhere and you can't run in 15 states at once. And there's a really good chance you're just going to get shellacked on Super Tuesday. And once that happens, it doesn't make sense for you to stay in this race. Everybody pursuing their own naked self-interest in this situation is setting up a situation where Bernie Sanders gets the biggest plurality. I, I keep saying biggest plurality. Everyone reminds me. A plurality is the biggest percentage. <laughs> right. So, so yeah, no one's winning the smallest plurality. That If you do that, you don't have a plurality. But you know, you're, Bernie Sanders is going to go into the convention with you know 40% of the vote or so and probably a bigger chunk of the delegates. They don't have winner state all, uh, take all states, but everything is above that 15% threshold. Anybody who has a a Klobuchar or Buttigieg, you know, respectable nine to 15 percent, nine to 14 percent. That's great, but it doesn't get any delegates. It doesn't count. Um, The idea that, oh, we're going to make this up in congressional districts. No, you're not. Right. At this point, you're competing for an impressive third place and you don't win the race when you're an impressive third place. So uh, it's really kind of fascinating to see this. This is a party that really could use this. It's obvious to everybody except the people who are most involved with this, Greg. (laughs) Jim, it's uh, it's like you said in a couple of other political situations, is that these people sticking in the in the race, even when the numbers and the results of the early primaries don't go their way, they're staying in because they're grounded in a very firm principle. And the principle is, is that they should be president of the United States. Yes. And all the lofty rhetoric about how this isn't about me, this is about you and your hopes and your dreams. That's uh, just a bunch of malarkey, as Joe Biden would say. And uh, it's really all about ego, because ultimately, at some point, you have to think that out of 320 some million people, you're the best person for the job. And then to... Uh, come to the realization that uh, the people don't actually want you is a little bit of a, a shot to that ego, and it's hard to actually admit it. 
You know, Greg, I'm going to quote a very funny line from Shaquille O'Neal at the memorial ceremony for uh, Kobe uh, and his daughter, where he said apparently they had some exchange that Kobe wasn't passing enough. And Shaquille O'Neal went over to him and said, you know, Kobe, there's no I in team. I'm going to clean up the language a little bit, but basically Kobe Bryant answered, no, but there's an M-E in that word. Yes, exactly. There is an M and an E for me. And that's uh, that's what we're going to see here. So we'll see if they're just uh, spinning so people don't give up on them before Super Tuesday. But uh, if all these people stay in after Super Tuesday, that will just be amazing. And hey, Tom Steyer is probably going to finish second or third in South Carolina, which is his best finish. So by his metrics, uh, why not? Let's well, get all the Scottish way. people there. <laughs> all the clan McLeods voting for McSteyer. All right. Well, let's talk about our second crazy martini now, Jim. And we've talked about coronavirus a number of times. Just talked about it a couple of days ago, in fact, as the markets were tanking. And in fact, they're still not exactly in a good mood as uh, different nations reporting uh, different levels of coronavirus cases. And in some cases, fatalities. Obviously, China is the epicenter, but now South Korea and Italy and uh, other nations have reported at least one case. And even the head of the CDC here has said you got to be ready for some sort of disruptions here, possibly closing schools for a time, or maybe workplaces need to work on telework options and that sort of thing. Well, President Trump tried to downplay the issue on, uh, or at least calm people down on the issue uh, to, on his trip to India earlier this week. Uh, then yesterday, when he got back to the U.S., he held a briefing at the White House, put Mike Pence as the the head of the response to uh, the coronavirus challenge. Obviously, HHS and CDC and all these other alphabet soups are going to be involved as well. But now that uh, the markets are freaking out and people are paying more attention, we've officially come to the conclusion in the liberal media that this is really Trump's fault. And so just a a few different uh, insights here. You've got Brian Stelter over at CNN tweeting yesterday, since the dawn of the Trump era, Countless experts have warned that the president's lack of credibility would imperil the country in the event of an emergency. As the coronavirus outbreak worsens, those fears may be coming true. Over at the New York Times, you've got opinion columnist Gail Collins with the title, Let's Call It Trump Virus. Subhead, if you're feeling awful, you know who to blame. Over at MSNBC, Chris Hayes tweets out, When Mike Pence was governor of Indiana, his public health record was so stellar that his state policy led directly to a large HIV outbreak. We don't know exactly how large that is. I'm sure statistics exist. Basically, Mike Pence was not... It was a needle-sharing program. Yeah, Mike Pence was not a fan of... Mike Pence did not like the idea of (laughs) taxpayers handing out needles to drug addicts. Big surprise, Which doesn't strike me as a crazy point of view. I can understand health policy experts saying, look, the absolute most important thing is to uh, not, you know, let the disease spread further. So the right thing to do is to hand out needles to people who are addicted to drugs. And I, I, I don't think it's... I don't think Mr. You know John Q. Public is a crazy person for looking at that and saying, eh, I don't know if I want to do that. But anyway, I didn't mean to, to, to yeah, continue, Greg. No, that's, exa- that's exactly the clarification we needed to make there. And secondly, I'm pretty sure that coronavirus is not transmitted that way, so I'm not sure how it's relevant to this particular mm-hmm. case. Uh, but Mike Pence does have executive experience, so I would say he's pretty competent to handle this. But the point is, is now that instead of talking about, ah, oh, we're all going to die, which I guess they're still all doing to some level, Uh, Even though the experts say it's uh, most likely uh, going to be about uh, 2% and people with compromised respiratory systems, as you have pointed out day after day. But this has now turned starkly political now that Trump has actually spoken out on it and put his team in place. Yeah. One of the things you and I have talked about coronavirus a couple of times on this podcast. It was kind of weird that as we, we first seeing these reports in China and how serious it seemed. 
the dominant U.S. mainstream media, not just the big national cable news, Washington Post, New York Times, all that kind of stuff. But even like think about your, your local news, Greg. How many times have you watched your local television news coverage? And it's always been like, this common home appliance may be trying to kill you. We'll tell you which one at 11. You know, uh, this, this tone of anything can turn into a really, you know, frightening topic. Right? They, they like to hype that things are dangerous and scary. You know, if your child talks to a stranger, they may be abducted tomorrow. You know, this, this constant hype. But all of a sudden, coronavirus, it's like, you know, it's really not, it's no worse than the flu. <laughs> you're, you're more likely to die from the common flu uh, than you are from coronavirus, stop freaking out people. I mean, it was this very weird, um, subdued tone to it. And, and I think uh, Ross do that had a, had a good column where he pointed out that like folks on the right didn't want to say that things look really bad and ominous because Trump is president. We want to believe that, you know, Trump's in, Trump's in control. The economy's roaring, nothing to worry about here. And people on the left didn't want to say, hey, foreigners coming over here might have diseases and be a threat to you. And oh, by the way, globalization and the interconnected economy might be a bad idea. So everybody's got some incentive to downplay the concerns about this. Well, now it's reached a level where where we really do have to worry about this. Uh, today's Morning Jolt is all about the good news. And to, to summarize it very quickly, um, whatever else you think of Trump or the administration or something like that, the odds are very good that your local hospital, that your local first responders, local health, state health officials near you, they train pretty much since 9-11, if not before, they've been training for bioterror. They've been training for natural disasters and mass casualty uh, uh, terrorism attacks and stuff like that. They're prepared for the worst case scenario. Did they prepare for this precise worst case scenario? No, but they generally know if they get a whole bunch of infections of really sick people at one time, here's how we react. Here's how we try to isolate the people who are sick. Here's how we try to stop it from spreading. Do we know that this system is going to work perfectly? No. And, and, but you know, one of the things that keeping is worth keeping in mind here is um, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Department of Health and Human Services, the whole Trump administration, even if they make every decision right, coronavirus could still be a pretty serious and disruptive problem. Right? There is no button to press in the American government to say, stop this problem from getting any worse. It's not that easy, right? But they look so far, everybody in this process seems to know what they're supposed to do. Uh, there are some concerns about shortages of masks and certain equipment and stuff like that. Maybe we shouldn't have been having that stuff made in China all these years. That seems like a, a little bit of an ominous point. But, uh, and also, I go through the numbers. If you are healthy, if you're a non-smoker, if you're not elderly, you're probably going to be fine based on what we know now. I don't want to oversell it. I don't want to you know, tell you there's no danger here. Um, now, there is bad news. Uh, Japan just said we're, we're canceling all school for schools for a month. In Hong Kong, it's going two months. Uh, Saudi Arabia just canceled access to, Me- to Mecca, which is pretty darn important in the Muslim faith. There's, you know, the International Olympic Committee said they're going to have to look at, you know, whether they need to change anything regarding the Olympics in Japan later this summer. This is going to be a big deal and nobody should downplay it. But one of the other reasons I thought about why this wasn't getting the huge amount of, of saturation coverage that it's gotten in the past 24 to 48 hours. So one is the markets are freaking out and that gives you another angle to the story. But the other thing is that it wasn't a political story. There was no this is Trump's fault angle. And so in the last 24 hours, there's been this generation of, well, it is Trump's fault. Now, of course, the, the common argument for this has been that Trump wanted to cut the CDC by X percent. Well, he proposed that in his budget. And as we, you know, so many people in America don't seem to understand this. Presidential budgets carry no weight. They, they, they're not law. This is basically the president saying, if I had budgetary control, this is how I'd spend the money. 
And Congress says, that's nice. We're going to allocate the money the way we want through appropriations bills and through the omnibus. And that's how it works. So there were no cuts to the CDC under Trump. The whole idea of, but Trump wanted to cut CDC is completely immaterial to dealing with the problem at hand. So uh, listeners, if you're a non-smoker who takes care of your health and you're taking basic preventative steps like washing your hands, you're probably going to be fine. I'm a little more worried about the rest of the world and I'm a little more worried about how the, you know, the effect of this on the rest of the world. But uh, the, the, the quick, the, how quickly this has turned into a political football and how much people want to turn this into a political football is really troubling and disturbing at a time like this, Greg. Yeah, and you got some weird ideas out there. Apparently, Rod Rosenstein's sister is a top official, if not the top official at the CDC. So you've got folks wondering if uh, she's... It's the deep state. <laughs> the deep yeah. state there. And you got other folks... Uh, Thinking folks on the left are uh, cheering for the markets to tank so the strong economy is not there for Trump to run on later this year. And uh, who knows? There's probably some people cheering for that. But uh, in the end, uh, read your morning jolt. You'll know the facts. And um, and uh, we'll all get through this. All right. Let's move back to uh, South Carolina for our crazy now because – Obviously, the big event there this Saturday is the Democratic presidential primary. There is no Republican primary, much to the chagrin of William Weld and probably Joe Walsh, even though he's dropped out. But uh, just because Trump is going to get all the uh, delegates from uh, South Carolina at the Republican National Convention doesn't mean that the Trump campaign in South Carolina is telling folks to sit this one out on Saturday when it's just the Democrats' time to vote. Here is an ad from the Trump campaign in South Carolina. Hi, I'm Karen with the Spartanburg Tea Party. And I'm Stacy, a grassroots activist. South Carolina Republicans have waited since 2016 to vote again for President Trump. With no Republican primary in South Carolina, voters will have to wait until November to cast a vote for our president. But there's still a way South Carolina Republicans can support President Trump. Even after losing in Iowa and New Hampshire, Joe Biden is still the favorite in South Carolina. We all know that the DNC and the Democrat establishment do not want the independent senator from Vermont as their nominee. We're asking South Carolina Republicans to show their support for President Trump by crossing over and voting in the Democratic primary for Senator Bernie Sanders. We feel this may help move the needle in closing our primaries in South Carolina. Help us help President Trump by going to your polling location on Saturday, February 29th and voting for independent Bernie Sanders to be the Democrat nominee. All right. So, Jim, I think the one good point in there is that they think a a byproduct of this effort will be to get the primaries to be closed in the future, meaning that independents can't vote. I think you and I would probably agree on that. And I guess even crossover is an option in South Carolina. But uh, when you're out there uh, specifically cheering for certain people in the other party to win, you might get what you want. And the result of that might not be what you want. So uh, how careful do uh, Trump supporters in South Carolina and and just folks in general need to be when they uh, consider tinkering with the other party's primary? Yeah. So I think you can have one of two principled viewpoints. One is, and one you and I have advocated on this podcast for a while, is the Democratic nominee should be selected by Democrats. The Republican nominee should be selected by Republicans. If you want a say in a party's decision, you should join that party. If you if, it, if that strikes you as too much of a, a you know, too, too much of a burden, too much of a, of a, of a commitment, then don't you don't get a say. I, I think this is not a good idea. I don't like New Hampshire the way that, you know, oh, independents might vote for, you know, I, I pick party and stick to it. And if you want to leave, leave. But, you know, at the very least, you should have to go down and, you know, file the paperwork to change your party registration and all that kind of stuff. 
Um, for those listening, by the way, you know, Virginia is a no, no, doesn't register anyone by party. So right. theoretically, Greg and I could vote for anybody. I believe, like you, if you don't, if you think this is a bad idea, then you should do it. And oh, by the way, the fact that the other side does it, like if you decide I'm going to do it, fine. If you decide, you know, but that means that next time Democrats decide to vote in a Republican primary to nominate Todd Akin or some nut, you know, in uh, in a Republican primary. That's going to, you know, they're doing the same mentality you are. Everybody's convinced that the other other guy's wrongdoing justifies them doing the same thing. You end up in this cycle where it never, ever stops. Um, I think the argument of we should have, you know, that we should end this era of anybody voting for anybody they want. Fine. Second thing is, is that if you're a conservative, nominating Bernie Sanders means, I, I concur with the assessment, he is probably among the easiest to beat out of all the Democrats, but the consequences of being wrong about that, the consequences of Bernie Sanders winning in November are really, really bad. Uh, I was talking with somebody the other day, Biden, Klobuchar. I don't really like these folks, although I think if you had a Republican Congress and them, you could end up with something akin to like a, a late Bill Clinton type presidency. Right. You know, that Biden's a deal maker. Klobuchar is actually, you know, Senate Republicans say she's actually fairly easy to work with. You could probably get something done if we had control of the legislative branch. Right now, we don't. That could happen in November, but nobody knows how it's going to shake out. So, you know, seems like a really big gamble. Uh, you know, Bernie Sanders, like if Bernie Sanders wins, it's like Democrats got a giant heaping serving of karma in November 2016. I think Republicans for Bernie, because they're so convinced there's no way he can win, are just asking for a similar giant serving of, of karma like this. So, um and if Bernie ends up winning, then things like this are going to look astonishingly foolish on the part of Republicans in places like South Carolina. Yeah, just to clarify a couple of points, you mentioned that a lot of Senate Republicans have said that Amy Klobuchar is easy to work with. That is not the same as easy to work for, uh, as we've pointed out in a number of cases. Uh, go clean the comb, for example. Um, and uh, secondly, Virginia... Uh, they, they 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 do make you when you go vote in the primary, and as you said, there's no party affiliation in Virginia. And you walk up to the table, and they ask you which primary ballot you want, uh, and they give it to you. You do have to promise, Jim, to vote for that party's choice then in the general election, which I know everyone in Virginia does. Yeah, I remember they wanted to make some sort of like notary signed loyalty <laughs> oath or something like that. Yes. And the first thing is is like. Like, like, let's imagine, you know, yes, I promise I will vote for the Republican candidate. And then sometime between the moment they win the primary and uh, uh, general election day, turns out they have mob ties, uh, found in bed with, you know, an orgy involving a live pig, you know, every, every scandal possible. Well, I promised the party I was going to vote for this SOB, so I guess I had no. <laughs> it doesn't work that way, you know. You know what would solve that? Closed primaries and registering by party. Why is that so hard in this state? It's also completely unenforceable. It's not like you sh- you show up in November and they say, here's your sworn affidavit. We've already filled in your ballot for this guy because you promised us back in June that you would. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, not going to happen. It's, silly. it's like everybody is trying to come up with the most elaborate scenarios possible instead of just moving to closed primaries. Oh, Jim, the craziness just abounds. All three today. Uh, I imagine we'll have uh, at least one, if not more, tomorrow. So uh, talk to you then. Our last day before the vaunted primary itself. Uh, Can't wait, Greg. (laughs) Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a kind review with five stars, please. And uh, also don't forget, you can find us on those home devices, Alexa, Google Home. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch Podcast. 
We will see you tomorrow for the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch.